series called Overcoming Sin Addiction. Jeremiah chapter 2, very large book in your Bible there, about smack in the middle, you'll find it. We're going to talk about how to overcome sin addiction. Now you might be wondering, why would I go to Jeremiah chapter 2 of all places to talk about something like this? But I want you to notice something that God says through the prophet that really drives at the problem. And then in exposing that, we're going to see in this second chapter how God gives a solution to the problem of the people. We won't get this far tonight, but toward the end of the message, here's this declaration that God makes about the people. In Jeremiah 2, in verse 23, it says, You are a swift she-camel running here and there, a wild donkey accustomed to the desert, sniffing the wind in her craving, in her heat who can restrain her. Any males that pursue her need not tire themselves. At mating time, they will find her. Do not run until your feet are bare and your throat is dry. But you say, it is no use. I love foreign gods and I must go after them. And you'll notice the picture is describing the people of Israel at this time as if their sins are like this unrestrained in heat. We have to go and commit these sins. And here is God saying, you need to not do that. You need to follow after me. And the people respond, it's no use. We can't help ourselves. We must throw ourselves after these idols and commit these sins. And there's nothing that we can do about it. And this whole second chapter then spends time talking to the people about their sins. But as he goes through that, he's going to give a number of different ways why this choosing of the worthless and the the foolish idols is such a bad decision to try to convince them to move toward the ways of God. And so this becomes, I think, a really interesting thing just to think about on the surface that these are supposed to be the people of God. How did the people of God get to the point where they are saying back to God after God says you need to stop your sinning, they say it's no use. We can't help ourselves. We're going to continue in sin and we can't stop. And so this is the picture that that now Jeremiah walks into as he tries to work with the people. But go back to the beginning. Go back to chapter 2. In verse 1, and notice how all of this begins as God begins this prophetic message. Notice it says that the word of the Lord came to me saying in Jeremiah 2 verse 2, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. I I find this introduction amazing because God begins by saying, you know, I remember the good old days when it came to your devotion, how you loved me, how you would be holy to me, how you were seeking after me. And he's recalling the days when he brought them out of Egypt and they were going through the wilderness. Now, I hope maybe something is kind of signaling off in your head. As I said, here's God remembering the wonderful devotion of Israel in the wilderness. 
Well, if you go back and read about the things that were going on in the wilderness, it's maybe not quite that story. We remember that they are hardly even out of Egypt and they're wanting to go back. They want to to complain to God about the food and about the water. They want to stone Moses and Aaron and go back to Egypt. They're complaining. They're rebelling. The rebellion in the wilderness is so bad that they build a golden calf and begin to worship it. And God says, I'm going to kill them because they're rebelling against me and I'll make a new nation out of you, Moses. So how is God saying, oh, I remember your devotion while you were in the wilderness, how you were holy to the Lord and set apart. When we read and there's not a whole lot of devotion that's pouring from those early pages. And I think what God is doing is really trying to show how bad things have gotten for the people of Israel in the days of Jeremiah. That you would have the people of God whose hearts are so far from God that he could look back to the exodus and the time in the wilderness and say the devotion was better back then. The people cared for me more back then. The, the, the people had a heart for me and were holy for me back then. Whereas at this point, things are a disaster in terms of their spirituality and their love and devotion. And so here is God by, beginning by saying things were so much better back then and it wasn't spiritually great, but it's a whole lot better than what these people are doing right now. And this is the essence of this sin that they are in. They are so engrossed by their sin, so addicted to their sin that they are unable to have hearts that will turn toward God. And turn away from sin. And so the wilderness then becomes the good old days. Now, it makes us really truly ask the question, well, then what happened? And in fact, I want you to notice that that's exactly what God asks. In verse 4, he says, now here's my word to you. Verse 5, thus says the Lord, what wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness? And became worthless. Here's God asking a very important question. What did I do to justify you running so far away from me? What action did I commit? What are you going to point to that I did that you would be able to say the reason why we've left you and the reason why we will not stop our sins is because God, you did this. God says, You tell me what it is. And of course, the answer is there's nothing you're going to put on God to say, oh, well, because God did this, that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. Now, we like to do that, don't we? We like to kind of play that game. We go, oh, well, because of God doing this or not doing that, that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. And God's saying, be serious a minute. What have I done That has justified you leaving me and going into sin. You go ahead and provide the answers God's charged to them. What exactly did I do to be able to cause you to do this? And I want us to think about that question for ourselves. What would we say that would be the reason why we may have lost our devotion toward God? What would we point to God and say he's done? And that's why we're no longer devoted to him, why we don't give him our best, why he's not our priority, why we are consumed by sin. What has he done to justify where we are? 
Because God is saying, I challenge you to come up with a valid answer. Because obviously God hasn't done anything deserving of this response. God hasn't done anything worthy of our running from him. In fact, you'll notice the picture that he gives there when he says in verse 5, what wrong or what fault did they find in me that they went far from me? And notice the end of verse 5 that they went after worthlessness and became worthless. What do you think about that for a minute? We don't like things when they say, when the Bible says stuff like that. They went after worthlessness and became worthless. And we go, wait a minute, you can't say that. <laughs> How dare you say we became worthless? What are you pointing at, God? What are you saying when you would make such a point like that? But what God wants us to understand is how much sin corrupts us. I don't know that we ever can fully grasp how much sin changes us, corrupts us, wrecks us, and moves us the completely wrong direction from God. What we like to do with sin is, well, I'm not hurting anybody, and I'm not hurting myself, and so nobody's affected, and so sin is fine as long as nobody's hurt by it. That's how we like to look at it. We make kind of a, an analysis of it. As long as my sin doesn't seem to hurt anybody, then what's the big deal? And here's God saying, here's the big deal. You're going after worthless things. And when you go after worthless things, that makes you worthless. All right, let's talk about that for a minute. How can God say... That we become worthless when we follow worthless things. I'll have you follow a, your own personal illustration exercise for a moment. What makes something worthless to you? Or to maybe ask it a little bit better. When do you deem something that you have in your life worthless? When is it no longer valuable to you? And I would submit to you the answer is probably something to the effect of when the given thing no longer does what it's supposed to do, right? Something about whatever it is, it's worthless because it doesn't do what it was originally intended. Why do I get rid of my shoes? Well, they broke. They're no longer carrying out their function. They're worthless to me. It doesn't do anything. If you have a phone and it no longer makes phone calls. It's worthless to you because it's not doing what it's intended to do. That's when we value things as worthless. It doesn't do what it's supposed to do anymore. If you have a TV and no longer shows something, it just is black and looks at you. You go, okay, it's worthless. I'm going to get a new TV today. I want us to think about this is the idea of what God is trying to get us to understand is we're no longer carrying out our God-given purpose when we give ourselves over to sin. The reason why God can use the terminology, you are chasing after worthless things and have become worthless, is because you're no longer fulfilling the purpose that God has given you on this earth. And our purpose here is not to chase after every sin. But rather, as Dathan pointed out in the Lord's Supper talk, we were created in Christ Jesus for good works, Ephesians 2 and verse 10. Or how about one of the simple ones that Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount? You're supposed to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. So what are we doing when we are allowing ourselves to be overrun by sin? How can we possibly fulfill the purpose that God has given us? 
In that sense, then, what sin is doing is making us useless instruments in God's hands. We have a purpose given to us, but sin nullifies that. And we ruin the very thing that we're supposed to be doing. In terms of Israel, we could quickly make the point that you have in the book of Isaiah, God saying, you, the people of Israel, were supposed to be a light to the nation, salvation to the ends of the earth. You were supposed to be the the very light of God to show the world. And how did they do? Well, you read the prophets and we're told, well, the nations are blaspheming God because of Israel's behavior. They were worthless to the purpose that God had given to them. And in the same fashion, that's the picture that's being given to us. We are supposed to be a people who represent God. We are supposed to be a people who turn to God. We are supposed to be a people who look to God. And notice that's the very problem. Look at verse 6 in Jeremiah 2. They did not say, where is the Lord? They didn't look upward. Here they are, they're so steeped in their sin and steeped in their worldliness, they don't even ask, well, where is the Lord who brought us out of Egypt? Look at verse verse 7. You came into the land and rather than doing what God has asked you to do, you corrupted the land. Verse 8, the priests didn't say, where is the Lord? Middle of verse 8, the shepherds transgressed the Lord. End of verse 8, the prophets prophesied by Baal and went after worthless things. Nobody's doing what they're supposed to do. They're so steeped in their sin that no one cares to look upward and say, where is God? No one says, let's look to the law. No one says, let's do what God has asked us to do because they're so deep in their sins. And what God is trying to show us is, do you see how much sin changes us and corrupts us and ruins us so that we cannot carry out our God-given purpose And our God-given mission. You chase after worthless things. And ultimately you become worthless. Now what God wants to do here. Is give three illustrations to really drive this picture home. He's going to show this worthlessness. And in the process of showing the worthlessness. It is I believe really intended to convince us of ending this enslavement to sin, this sin addiction, this this carrying on and walking in sin and walking in darkness. He's going to use three illustrations to really try to seal the deal for them to help them understand why sin is so foolish and so ridiculous of a choice. Notice chapter 2 and verse 9, he says, Therefore I could still contend with you, declares the Lord. And with your children's children, I will contend, cross the coasts of Cyprus and sea and send to Kedar and examine with care and see if there has been such a thing. Okay, here's here's God going. I'm going to put a challenge down. You've never seen what my people have done. Wait a minute, what'd they do? Verse 11, has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. I want you to see the first picture is he says, I want you to just do a test. People of the world, people historically, ancient Near Eastern times, people didn't exchange gods. You just kind of kept accumulating. You just, okay, oh, oh, they're in charge of that. Great. We'll worship that too. Got another one. Great. We'll worship them too. 
accumulate, accumulate, accumulate. And here's what God says. I've got a challenge for you. My people, rather than just simply accumulating gods for themselves like everybody else in the world, has actually gone one step worse. They've traded me out. They have forsaken me. They have completely left me behind to go after these other gods. And he makes the point that even the Gentiles, even those of the world, wouldn't make a decision like that. And so there is this picture of God being insulted at this exchange that is being that has happened. And the wording that I think is so powerful in verse 11 is that they have changed their glory for that which is worthlessness or that which does not profit. You had glory and you said, I don't want glory. I want worthlessness. I want uselessness. I want things that are of no value. That's the exchange that that is being made. I want us to think about how God is framing that. Because I think here's what God is saying. You had the best thing in the world. And you traded it for the most worthless thing in the world. An idol that can't do anything. You had glory. You had the best. You were at the pinnacle. You had it all because you had God. And he says you exchanged glory for worthless things. I want you to think about, we've spent time today in Romans 1. I never even realized that till tonight that we've done that. I want you to come back to Romans 1 for a minute and think about how the Apostle Paul said that very point. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. I want you to notice that God does not say you've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for another glory. He doesn't say that. You've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images of animals and people. That's a really bad trade. He's trying to put that forward. You didn't even change glory for glory. You went from glory to a picture. Who would make that change? He does it again just a few verses after then. Verse 24. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Notice again the the exchange that happened. He doesn't say you exchange the truth about God for another truth about God. That's not what happened. You exchange the truth about God for a lie. Okay, who does that? You had the truth. And he said, I don't want the truth. I'd rather have a lie. He says, you exchanged the creator, not for another creator. You exchanged the creator for the creature, for the created. That doesn't make sense either. Notice how Paul is reflecting the very picture of Jeremiah too. A bad exchange is happening. You're exchanging truth not for truth, but for lies. You're exchanging glory not for glory, but for images, for things that are worthless, for things that have no value, that they don't profit. This is the very picture of sin. If we could please emblazon this 
into our mind. What we are doing when we sin is we are exchanging glory and truth and the creator for images, for lies, for the creature and for the created. That's the decision we're making. We are telling God we don't want the truth. We want a lie. We don't want glory. We want garbage. That's what's happening. And this is what God is saying here in in verses 9 through 11. When he says, be appalled and be shocked. Verse 12, be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate. Who would do something like this? It's a foolish decision. That's his first image that he's trying to get across to us. Is that we are exchanging the glory of the immortal God for another glory. One that is a worthless one. (laughs) When I was going over this, I thought about when I was in elementary school, my parents liked to torment me in a number of different ways, but I won't get into that. But one of the things that they did was if you can remember way on back, you know, back in the 1900s, they made something called rice cakes. Now, not like what they do now. You know, now they've got like flavors and it's thin and nice. No, back in when I was in school, it was about that thick and about that around. And there was no flavor. and It was like eating styrofoam. And my parents would send me with that. But I, were, I was sitting at lunch one time, and the kids had their Chips Ahoy cookies, which, you know, in that day and age, it was glory. <laughs> and they saw the size of this rice cake. And one of them said, I will trade you my Chips Ahoy cookie for that. And I mean, I will. <laughs> yes, here you go. And I am inhaling because I know it's about to happen. (laughs) I take a bite and they come after me and they go, what is this? It's what you wanted. It's what you asked for. You never wanted to trade me again. Never wanted to trade me again. And he understood that he had exchanged goodness for garbage. those, Those things were garbage. Why did they buy those? Why did they send them? I don't know. Ask to ask my parents later. It's that kind of picture that God is trying to communicate right here. You're trading the very best for something that's useless, valueless, tasteless, empty. No one picks it up and goes, yeah, that's what I want. But that's what we do with sin. We're taking the empty And valuing it and saying, this is the ultimate. And God is saying, be appalled. You should be shocked at that kind of decision. Now, he illustrates it even further. Look at it in verse 12. Be shocked, O heavens. Be shocked and appalled at this and be utterly desolate. Look at verse 13. For my people have committed two evils. They've committed two evils. What are the two things that they've done? It says there in verse 13, they have forsaken me. The fountain of living waters. I want you just to picture the importance of of this image, especially in that day and time. Here is living, flowing, rushing water. And think about how important that is in that day and time. 
you have, I mean, even in our day and time, what do you want your water bottle to say? You know, it flowed down some wonderful mountain in some foreign country with all the wonderful minerals and it's got everything in it and it's just flowing, wonderful water. He says, here's the first great evil that has been committed. You had the best. You had a fountain of water flowing. The very thing you wanted. He says, you forsaken it. And then he says, the second great evil. Verse 13. Instead of the fountains of flowing waters, you decided to cut out of rock for yourself a cistern. Now, Stan's right. We don't have psalms with cisterns because we don't even know what a cistern is. We don't even use cisterns. Back in that day and time, if you didn't have flowing living water, the best thing you could do was try to find something hard like a rock, cut a bowl out of it to some degree so that it would catch the rainwater and you could go drink that. And he says, here's what you've done. You didn't want the flowing river. You wanted the stale rainwater that sits in the bowl of the rock. And notice he says, you had to cut that bowl out yourself. You know, when it's a river, you just kind of walk up and go, all right. River water, piece of cake, easy. Got your bucket, good to go. He says, you had to go do the work of cutting into a rock. Pretty easy work, right? Cut into a rock. (laughs) You have decided you would rather cut and cut and cut into the rock, make a bowl and catch the rainwater. Now, that's not actually the full, I left something out. It's not even the full picture he's giving us. Look at the end of verse 13. Your cistern doesn't hold water. You traded the river of living water, decided it would be better to spend your time digging a hole in a rock to catch the rainwater that doesn't catch rainwater at all, leaks out and is broken. That's the decision that we're making when it comes to sin. What we are telling God is to modernize it. I don't enjoy going up to my filtered, refrigerated, cool water where I walk up with a cup and drink out of it. I would rather go into the street, dig a hole out of it, wait for it to rain, and then try to drink out of that, except it doesn't catch any water. I'd rather do that. None of us would do that. We would go, ooh, gross, I'm not going to drink the water that's been sitting out there in the road. And God's saying, that's what sin is. You're trying to drink road water. And I'm trying to give you living, flowing waters that can satisfy. I'm trying to give you glory. Friends, if there's nothing else you get from this, You want to break the addiction of sin? Think about sin in that decision. You are taking the very best, the very thing that can give you life and satisfy, and saying, I don't want that free gift. I would rather work hard myself to try to find my own satisfaction which God is saying can't satisfy at all. That's what we're doing. 
What we are telling God is that sin is going to satisfy me. Sin's going to give me what I need. And God's saying, it can't. It won't do. As much as we try and try and try, it never, ever works. Give yourself a second here. Do some spiritual inventory right now. How many sins have you committed that have given you long lasting satisfaction all the days of your life forever on? Was everything you wanted and gave you everything you needed and fulfilled every hope, every joy, everything. Long lasting, right? Now, what's the nature of sin? It's 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 momentary in God. And that's what God's trying to communicate to us is you've committed these two great evils. You've taken the best. You've thrown it away for the worst. You want to dig your own cistern and it will never, ever work. It will never work. There is not a single sin that will ever pay off like it says it will. Not one. The faster we can get our mind around that. There is not a single sin as enticing as Satan may try to make it that will ever pay off like Satan says it will. We're not going to do it. It's not going to give you what you're looking for. So let me end with this then. Three, three takeaways for how we can break sin addiction from this text. Number one, I think this one is very important, so I'm bringing back in those first three verses. God's not the reason for our sinning. Stop blaming him. Your problems are not because of God. Your sinning's not because of God. That's not the issue. There is no fault that we can ever find with God. Everything God has done is for our good. Everything God has done is for our good. There is no fault you will ever find with him. And there's not a single sin that you can blame on him and go, that's your fault. God can cleanly and clearly say to us, what did I do to justify you leaving me? And the answer is nothing. All God has done is cared for us and brought us to this moment. He is not to blame and no charge can be brought against him. Number two, sin is making us worthless in God's hands. I hope that we will hear that. We are throwing our lives away. We are ruining ourselves. We are corrupting ourselves by chasing after sin. We are not fulfilling our God-given, God-created purpose. When we give our lives over to sin, to state that another way, we're just not what we're supposed to be. We're just not what we're supposed to be. We had time. How many times did I say? I didn't give. How do I say that all the time? I had time. But think about how the Apostle Paul will frequently talk about. Don't give your bodies over as slaves to unrighteousness. But give your bodies over as instruments and slaves of righteousness. You're supposed to be an instrument of righteousness in the hands of God. We are failing our purpose. And friends, I would like to underscore that when life seems empty 
when it feels mundane, when it seems worthless, when it's just depressing and dark, often the problem is very simple. We're not living to our God-given purpose. We are trying to find our purpose elsewhere, and that will always be empty and depressing and sad and useless and worthless. Always will be. God made us so that we would seek after him. And if we keep trying to find it out there, we're going to come up empty every single time. Number three. Please see that our sinning is a shocking, terrible exchange. We are making a really, really bad trade every time. We are trading the truth for a lie. We are trading glory for worthlessness. We are exchanging the cool, clean, flowing drinking water for stale, lukewarm, pothole water. We are exchanging the creator for the created. You're exchanging chips ahoy for rice cakes. Whatever you need to use to try to drive it into our minds. This is a terrible, terrible, terrible trade that we are making every single time we make that choice. And we need to feel the weight of that. We are exchanging the best life for the worthless life. We are exchanging being tools in the hand of God for being useless instruments in his hand. And we choose to not fulfill our God-given purpose. Jesus said it like this. He was telling this woman at the well. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. That's a great metaphor. You know, he wasn't just talking about that water right there. That is the sum of life. You try to drink any other water that is out there, you are going to be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That image is coming right out of Jeremiah. Here's God saying, I'm trying to give you life. I'm trying to give you satisfaction. I'm trying to give you purpose. I'm trying to give you direction. I'm trying to give you everything you need and want in life. And what we are doing by, by sinning is we are saying to God that he is not the answer. And he cannot satisfy my needs. We're telling God. He's not the answer. And he ultimately can't satisfy. And that's why God rightly says, be appalled, be shocked, and be utterly desolate. For who could tell God that? That he does not satisfy our lives and does not give us what we need or is the answer. Friends, let's break the life of sin by seeing that we are trading away Everything for nothing that will last for help. Let's go to God in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that these visuals that you have given to us through your prophet Jeremiah will be emblazoned into our hearts so that we would see the foolishness of our sins. Help us to see how we are trading away glory for worthlessness. 
Help us to see that we are trading away the truth for a lie. Help us to see that we are trading away everything that we need for life and godliness and joy and healing and rest and peace. For a life of emptiness, for a life of hurt, for a life of lack of direction, and simply a life of worthlessness. Help us to see the foolish exchange that we make. And Lord, I pray that you would forgive us for those exchanges. And I pray, Lord, that our devotion to you will be stronger in the days ahead. Lord, we pray that it would never be said that our devotion to you was far better in the past than it is right now. So stir us up. Stir us up to be courageous against sin and to fight it with all of our might. Give us the strength we need to cut out the areas of temptation, to make changes where where we are weak. We pray, Lord, that you would make us strong as you said you would as we seek to put on your armor that you've given to us. So help us in this pursuit. Forgive us for our past failings. Help us to be strong as we go forward. Through your Son, our Savior, Jesus, we pray this prayer. And amen. Well, we offer an invitation to you tonight. If it is your desire to do this very exchange, to turn away from sin, to choose to no longer follow after worthlessness, but instead to follow after the things of value in life, would you come to God this very day to turn away from those sins? We'd love to help you to do that. If you are already a follower of Jesus, but you have given yourself over to the worthlessness of life, we encourage you to seek him now with all of your heart, to, to find forgiveness in him. And if we can help you in that pursuit, you let us know as well. Won't you come now while we stand and while we sing?